us a great many things by weaving together various images and comparisons. Today, we're going to pick up our study of the Gospel according to St. Mark and pick up in chapter 9, reading verses 1 through 29. Now in this, we're going to look at three different scenes, and at first they might seem like they are a little unrelated or just placed about the Gospel, but they do have a common connection. And as we look at our three principal scenes, we find that the first one comes from Jesus, who is delivering a sermon. It's a very short, simple sermon of one sentence, but yet it is very deliberate and very important. The second scene we're going to examine is that of the Transfiguration, and it's a bewildering, fascinating image, but there's something about it that I want us to give careful attention to. The third scene we'll look at is that of the healing of a demonic possession. There's a child which has been enslaved and taken prisoner by this horrible, untouchable monster, and Jesus comes along and heals the child of the unclean spirit. So we're going to look at all three of these, but we're going to take the first scene, and we're going to pull its thread through the other two with the goal of learning how the kingdom of God radiates light in opposition to death. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. Let's open up with a quick prayer, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask that you come be with us wherever we may be, across the internet, across the airwaves. Come into our hearts and minds. Invigorate us with your wisdom, your strength, your courage, that we can look at your light, at your throne, and be refined by your glorious image. Lord, bless those whom are around us, those whom we love, and we ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so today we're going to open up with Mark 9, verse 1. And in this, the scripture reads, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they sing the kingdom of God when it has come with power. All right, so that's our first scene. It's just that one verse, and its message is really just a single sentence. Now, Jesus' sermon is short, but nonetheless extremely deliberate. And you might look at this and say, well, you know, Jesus is just laying out a simple timetable by which his ministry is scheduled here on earth. And while that is certainly true, Jesus is actually outlining sort of the program for everything going to the cross, I want us to realize that the gospel message is not just true in the immediate sense, but Jesus opens up our hearts and minds to perceive the broader and truer perspective of the kingdom of God. And one of the things which is important to critical thinking, because God made our minds sufficient to stand though free to fall, God made your mind that it might think clearly, it might navigate the world with great integrity and be able to overcome. You know, it's always tempting to think that we just want to put our minds aside and not solve problems, but God made our minds to do wonderful things. And one of the things which is really important to critical thinking is putting everything in the world in its proper order and its proper place. And as we come to our gospel sermon here that Jesus delivers to the people, one of the things that he is doing is putting the world in its proper order. In his sentence there that says, Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God when it has come with power. He is telling us that not only is death in opposition to the kingdom of God, but death is of a lower order, a much lower order than the power of the kingdom of God. Now, I know that first scene is very short, but I want us to fasten ourselves to its thread as we pull it through the rest of our gospel lesson. So just hold on to that. Picking up in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now, Let's just pause for a moment. I want us to soak in that sentence. 
his garments, his clothes. You know, I'm over here wearing a blue coat. This coat doesn't do much. If you're watching this through the computer or just listening to me, you know, the coat is not alive. It's not doing anything at all. In fact, I pulled it out of the closet just a few moments before coming in my studio. But what we see happening here is Jesus' clothes are doing something. They are radiant. They are exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Let's pick up in verse 4. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter responded and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And not knowing what to say, not knowing how to reply, they became terrified. But then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, they looked around and saw no one with them, except Jesus alone. Now as they were coming down the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate anyone what they had seen. And that was until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now they seized upon this statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead could mean. And Jesus asked, or excuse me, and they asked Jesus, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it had been written. All right, now this second scene, it's one that is quite bewildering. This is the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, as we see this scene there on the high mountain, which takes place six days later after the first scene, there's an endless number of messages and interesting things we could discuss about the prophets and their significance. But today, I want us to discuss something that is a much smaller detail that we could easily miss. I want us to direct our attention to the description of Jesus' clothing found in Mark 9, verse 3. And going back to reread that sentence, and this is the NASB's translation, it says, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now what is so peculiar about Jesus' garment is that their account is given with the careful application of a verb. And now I know it's, it's oftentimes boring to discuss parts of speech and stuff like that. I know when I was growing up in school, I hated it with the heat of a thousand suns. I said to myself, I'm never going to care about language. Why am I learning grammar? And lo and behold, as it turns out, this is now what I do with my life. And also I realized that how we think about the world, how we discuss the world is very important. Language is a very important tool. And when we come back to this discussion right here of Jesus's clothing, we found it's described as a verb. And that's the part of speech which denotes an action. Now, in Greek, we'll find the verb stilbo, which is used here in this setting, and it means to shine, to radiate. And what's so important about this, just bear with me as we talk about parts of speech, is that these clothes, they're not merely in a state of being clean, but they're actively doing something. They are stirring with light. They are invigorated with energy that beams over the world from Jesus. And I want us to think about this. How often do we describe our clothing with verbs? Generally, we might describe garments as being clean or dirty, nice or worn out, but again, none of those are action words. They're not anything which denotes some sort of active, living, energized movement. 
You know, on occasion we might describe the composure of something like blue or red, casual or dressy. Right now I've got sort of a blue coat on. But such descriptions, there are not verbs, for we generally describe our wardrobes using adjectives and occasionally we'll give them the category of a noun or something like that. But if we're honest about ourselves as fallen creatures, the only time we ever describe an article of clothing as doing something active, it's usually when we say something is stinking or it is rank in some capacity and it's sort of permeating this foul smell around the room. And the reason for this is simple. Our dress is capable of doing very little on its own. Yesterday when I was preaching the sermon there in the, the sanctuary at Jolton Church of the Nazarene, I kind of threw my coat off on the floor and I was like, does anybody expect it to get up and, and do anything? And there was actually a, a lady that sits on the front pew. She came over and with the, the careful love of a mother picked up the coat because she couldn't stand to see it on the floor and nicely folded it and set it on the front pew. But you know what? It wasn't going to do that on its own because our clothes verily they very rarely do anything. The only thing they generally ever do is repeat our own foul smells and uncleanliness. And where uncleanliness is the common attire of fallen man, what we find here in Mark chapter 9 is that the Son of Man is capable of something aspirational, something altogether different. For when Jesus steps to the mountain, even his tunic is commanding. For not only will the rocks cry out, should God's creatures fail to give him the, the glory which he is so due. But the very tunic that Jesus wears radiates with light. You know, this is not a grotesque reflection of the soilings which we leave in our worldly linens, but instead, this is the active and alive radiation of light that is decreed by everything belonging to the King of Kings. And I want us to think about the world around us. I want us to think about the state of the fall. Death does not radiate. The void that we might find in Genesis 1-2, it does not radiate. The nether gloom beneath all worlds which the angels are held in for their own sins, where they've got these eternal chains of torment, that place does not radiate. But the light of the world does. The word of God spake, and it, light came forth. When the new heaven and new earth arrive after Jesus judges the living and the dead, We'll find that everything melts away like molten elements, and then there's a new heaven, a new earth, and night is no more, for the light of God shall reign eternal. When we look to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that text reads, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And this is what happens when the kingdom of God draws nigh, the light radiates. And when we go back to our first scene there, that thread that I want us to pull through, there is an order of things. The kingdom of God and its power is of higher order than death. And even as we behold that power, it radiates with light. It pierces through the world around. And it does it not that God the Son might impress God the Father. This isn't something that's just done for God's own self. It is done for you. It's done for those disciples who went up on the mountain with Jesus. It's done so that Peter, James, and John can be blessed by the grace of God. It is a gift. Let's go to our third scene. And there's a lot of sermons that can be had on this third scene. This is where we find the, the famous scene where the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And there's a whole lot we can learn from that. We're going to look at this demon-possessed child. And today, I want us to 
actually see the story from the perspective of the child. I know I've preached a lot on the perspective from the father and even from that of how the gospel, you know, relates to the world around us. But today I want us to realize that this child has been living in an unending nightmare. And I want us to see it from his end. And especially with that thread of tasting death and the power of kingdom, the kingdom of God, I want us to weave all this together. So let's read, beginning in Mark 9, verse 14. And when they came back together with the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, the entire crowd saw him, and they were amazed and begun running up to see him. And he asked them, What are you disputing with them? And one person from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, because he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and grinds his teeth, and becomes stiff. And I told your disciples so that they would cast it out, but they could not do it. Let's pause for a moment. This is a heinous manifestation that we're seeing here. This is absolutely sinister. This is foul. This is wretched, wicked. This is diabolical of the most, you know, grotesque dimensions. The monster that is here is an untouchable force that has taken possession of this child. It is, it is evil. The darkness which is portrayed here is, is just vile. It is beyond words and it is unconscionable. But now we have this monster, which is afflicting this child, brought before Jesus. The, the kingdom of God has now come near to the scene of unending death. And as we'll find in the scripture, we are reminded how much this is an image of unending death. And with that, let's continue reading. Let's pick up in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Oh, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And they brought him, the boy. And when he saw him, the spirit immediately threw him into convulsions, falling to the ground, and began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. Let's pause. One of the things that evil does is it plays the victim card and makes good work look like it is not actually good. If you've ever tried to deal with a problem, if you've ever tried to confront an evil, there is weeping and gnashing of, of teeth. It is not pretty to confront evil. It is ugly, and a lot of people do not have the stomach for it. In fact, there's a lot of people who know that evil is over there, but they would rather it stay put than have to witness the, the hideous scene of being it cast out. Watching evil be cast out is not pretty. And what we find here is something similar that we've seen throughout the gospel. If you remember, when Jesus comes there to the region of the Gerasenes, and there's this demoniac there in the cemetery, he comes over, and the demons which are possessing him, this legion, begs Jesus to have mercy on them. They act like the, vic the, the victims in this scene are the demons, and Jesus is the offender. And the town even begs Jesus to leave. The world will paint good as being evil because it disrupts things and it makes an ugly scene and they will portray evil as being the victim and as being good. The only way to pursue through this is having your eyes and ears transformed by God so that you have the discerning power of the Holy Spirit to see truth. There's no magic formula. There's no magic rule about who can be a victim, who can't. You have to have the, the power of the Holy Spirit working through you so you can navigate these treacherous waters. 
Right here, we see that happening. It's a terrible scene. Verse 21, And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to kill him. That sentence is so important. From childhood, this demon has thrown the child into the fire and into the water, not to burn him, not to make him gag, but to kill him. Hold on to that thought because that's important to this scene. And it's important to our thread that we're pulling through our our gospel lesson. But if you can do anything, continued the father, take pity on us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of the boy and never enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why is it that we could not cast it out? And Jesus replied, This kind can only come out through prayer. All right, so this third scene is very heinous. This incident with the demon-possessed child is, is grotesque. And I want us to understand, the sad life of this youth was one continually tormented with images of total destruction. You know, in our world right now, near-death experiences have become a little bit of a sci-fi phenomenon. You know, we have books written about it. We hear these stories of people who they're, they're in car wrecks, they're, they're in weird incidences that are very deadly and very serious, and they have their life flash before their eyes, and this light kind of opens up to them. You know, there's a lot of really inspiring stories about people who have had near-death experiences, and they're really fascinating to, to read and to learn about. But what we find right here is a child who has also had a near-death experience, one that's continual. However, Scripture reveals to us a child who has not been continually thrust before a bright light, for the heinous near-death images which this youth has endured were labors from below rather than above. Scripture is honest to us. This child has been continually thrust in the face of death. And as we read there in Mark 9, 21 through 22, the father explains to Jesus, From childhood, it has often thrown him both in the fire and into the water to kill him. It's difficult for us to appreciate the terrible nightmare of having a demon seize your body and use your own muscles to plunge you near a torturous demise, to take your own muscles against your will and do such a, a malice, a malicious thing. It's, it's so terrible. The malice here is just extraordinary. However, a scripture does not hide from us the mystery nor the ugliness of this scene. The demon wanted to take its captive all the way to the edge of life and make him peer into the darkness. This child's tongue, you know, our opening up scene today was about people who will not taste death before the kingdom of God was there. The tongue of this child was taken all the way 
to the brink of extermination, that he might taste the vile rot of sin's true wage, all while being a prisoner to an untouchable monster who would never let him go. This monster, this demon, this miserable spirit, would only repeat the sinister tease to the child without end. You know, we think about sufferings that are worse than death. How heinous it is to imagine a child be put in a scenario where they might wish death rather than to continue. But that's essentially what the scripture is painting for us. This child, he was taken and forced to to take a sip, to take a taste of death, but never swallow. Never to really soak that into his body. Never enjoy the release from captivity. And when we look at the, the neighborhood around this child, the, the neighbors who watch, the idea of lifelessness had so defined this poor boy's existence that even after he was healed, his neighbors can only see death in him. Oh yeah, the taste of death had assuredly been endured by this child. But you know what? There's an order to things. Oh yeah, there's an order to things. And when the kingdom of God comes near, it casts out the darkness. That vile taste which this boy had assuredly endured, it is replaced by a radiance from on high. Jesus' good news is that the kingdom of God's power is far greater than death. This is not a philosophy or a creed. This is a material act that affords liberty for a fettered child. Here we see the good, the true, the beautiful, the way, the truth, and the life coming to cast out the darkness because God, his power, cannot abide the darkness. And with gracious illumination, it reveals to us an entirely different image. This child is no longer thrashing about, but now covered by the light which has come unto him. We look back at that scene where Jesus' garment is radiating. What we have now is the providential mercy of God drawing near to a boy and its freedom beckoning with a rod and staff to pull him from that valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus reminds us something which is built all throughout the gospel. We're not here to avoid the dark valley, to go around it or replace it with another type of suffering. No, victory is found through the dark valley. And Jesus, being the absolute redeemer that we were never even worthy to imagine. Jesus comes and he steps through death itself that he might afford for us a victory beyond comparison. Jesus pierced through it all with just abrupt confrontation to grace us with life. Now pulling our thread through all of our scenes, we find ourselves blessed by the grace of God. The power of God's kingdom beckons us to aspire higher, that our lives might be transformed to stand just and whole before the God of all creation. The transfiguration was not displayed that God might witness to himself, but that man might be covered by the gracious cast of his light. The child. This child was not delivered so that God the Son might might impress God the Father, but so the goodness of God might defeat the darkness which destroys the lost children from within. So I want us to return again to Jesus' sermon there in Mark 9.1. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God when it has come with power. You know, the hope that's found there, it did not remain on a tent on a mountain or in a town of a bewildered crowd, but rather it beckons 
It beckons true to you. To this day, it is beckoning true. That order of things, that the kingdom of God is higher than death, that is true to this day. You can reach out and you can walk with God before you taste death. And how beautiful that is. And on the question of tasting death, the transfiguration illuminates to us that, you know, perhaps death is not as powerful as we had once perceived because Elijah and Moses are there. They're not rotting corpses. They're not decayed fibers just sitting around in some ossified pile. They're there alive, conferring with Jesus for the world to witness. So on this day, we have the gracious opportunity to behold God's kingdom. Therefore, let us do so with great love in our hearts. So let's say the Lord's Prayer as we close. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. With that, God love you and have a blessed day. And I think I see a little comment there from Angie Darnall. God love you. Take care.